This is the Raising Freethinkers podcast. I'm Dale McGowan, editor and co-author of Raising Freethinkers and Parenting Beyond Belief, books for raising compassionate, curious kids without religion. This is episode 13, After the Origin, the last in our series on evolution. Last time, I looked at ways to introduce young kids to evolution. But once they've got the ball and are running with it on their own up into middle school and high school, there's much more to talk about. Like what happened after 1859, after On the Origin of Species, was published. In the decades that followed, there was a determined effort to knock the legs out from under the theory of evolution, and it looked for a while like it was going to succeed. Now, I'm not talking about religious opposition. That was certainly there. But the more serious threat in the generations immediately following 1859 was a hailstorm from inside the tent, the scientific community itself. At the same time, there was an effort to misrepresent Darwin's own opinions about his theory and about religion. Now, that knot took even longer to untangle than the scientific debate. And the knot was tied not only by opponents of Darwin, but also by those who loved him most, his family. These two intertwined stories, one about a theory and the other about its originator, shed a fascinating light on both science and religion and how the two of them affect what comes down to us through history. Now, some parts of these two intertwined stories are pretty well known. That Darwin attended Cambridge with the intention of becoming a clergyman. That he was so religious when he boarded the HMS Beagle that he amused and annoyed the crew with his constant quoting of scripture. That his faith was deeply shaken by his observations during that five-year voyage. That he started working the theory out in writing 17 years before he published. And described his early realizations that species are not fixed, saying... It is like confessing a murder. And you may know that he only got off the dime and moved to publication once he heard that Alfred Russell Wallace had figured out the same thing. And that Thomas Huxley saw an early draft of The Origin and said, How extremely stupid not to have thought of that! And then earned the name Darwin's Bulldog for his vigorous defense of the theory after publication, including a famous debate at Oxford with Bishop Soapy Sam Wilberforce. Every one of those is a great story, but most of those are fairly well known. Your kids can find them well told in other places. I want to focus on those two specific threads, scientific attacks on the theory and the attempts to rewrite Darwin's own views. Let's start with Darwin. Charles Darwin wrote a terrific book. I loved it the first time I read it, and then I read it twice more. And the more I read it, the more I liked it. Not everyone feels the same about this book. Some were so disturbed by what he wrote that they cut whole passages out before its publication. Most people didn't get to read the book in its entirety until 1958, when the excised passages were restored. What? Oh, no, 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 not that Darwin book. I'm talking about his autobiography. (music) 
Darwin sat down to write his autobiography in May 1876. Quote, As if I were a dead man in another world, looking back at my own life. Nor have I found this difficult, he added, for life is nearly over with me. He apparently knew this from a line on the title page that he had just written. Charles Darwin, 1809 to 1882. Chills. He also said he thought the attempt at such a thing, quote, would amuse me and might possibly interest my children or their children. Now that's ironic, since it was one of his own children who was to serve as the slicer-dicer of Charles's recollections, and one of his children's children who made it whole again. The autobiography first appeared publicly, edited by his son Francis in 1887. Francis is the villain in this tale, but the more you learn about why he did what he did, the harder it is to fault him too much. Frank acted out of concern for the reputation of the author, his father, and the strongly expressed wishes of his mother, Emma. Now, usually an author's desires are plenty clear. The words on the page are the ones that he or she wanted included, but there was some disagreement about whether Darwin ever intended to publish his autobiography at all or if he had just meant it for his family, which does complicate things. Now, it got nasty. In the five years between Darwin's death and the publication of the autobiography, the Darwin family tore itself up over what should appear and not appear in the book. At one point, one wing of the family considered suing the other. So Frank did his best, and then 71 years later, with the principals in the original fight all safely dead, his niece did better. In its original unbuggered form, the autobiography of Darwin was a genuine page-turner. It's full of the kind of keen observation that made Darwin, Darwin. Instead of the natural world, Darwin's eye and mind are turned on himself and those around him, as well as the sometimes agonizing and deeply honest development of his own opinions. He says both flattering and unflattering things about people living and dead and expresses opinions both kosher and heretical. But in its buggered form, Darwin is an undiscerning dotterer. He likes everybody and everything just fine, especially those who were still alive at the time of publication. That's right, in an interesting reversal, the dead are the only ones of whom Frank allows his dad to speak ill. And the wonderfully complicated ebb and flow of his opinions on religion is reduced to a hazy, misleading mumble in favor of the status quo. Now, fortunately for me, it was the later restored edition that reached me first, which is probably why I read it more than once. But I wasn't aware of its tortuous history until much later. An incredible ability to pay attention may have been Darwin's defining characteristic. This was the guy who found it possible to study nothing but barnacles for eight years straight. That superhuman ability to observe and notice was surely the reason that he was able to figure out the puzzle of natural selection. And as a result of this well-honed ability, the original autobiography 
is just bursting with sharp observations of the people around him. Frank's version? Eh, not so much. There are dozens and dozens of passages to talk about, but that would make a two-hour episode, and I'd be alone at the end. So I'm just going to focus on a few passages. First, there's Darwin talking about himself, a childhood memory. About this time, he said, he was about eight, or as I hope at a somewhat earlier age, I sometimes stole fruit for the sake of eating it. And one of my schemes was ingenious. The kitchen garden was kept locked in the evening and was surrounded by a high wall, but by the aid of neighboring trees I could easily get on the coping. I then fixed a long stick into the hole at the bottom of a rather large flower pot, and by dragging this upwards, pulled off peaches and plums which fell into the pot, and the prizes were thus secured. When a very little boy, I remember stealing apples from the orchard for the sake of giving them away to some boys and young men who lived in a cottage not far off. But before I gave them the fruit, I showed off how quickly I could run, and it is wonderful that I did not perceive that the surprise and admiration which they expressed at my powers of running was given for the sake of the apples. But I well remember that I was delighted at them declaring that they had never seen a boy run so fast. Now see how that just pops Darwin into three dimensions? But that fun bit of candor was entirely cut out, lest the world learn that he picked fruit that wasn't his when he was eight. Now here's a passage about the geologist Charles Lyell, one of his greatest influences. On my return from the voyage of the Beagle, I explained to him my views on coral reefs, which differed compared to his, and I was greatly surprised and encouraged by the vivid interest which he showed. On such occasions, while absorbed in thought, he would throw himself into the strangest attitudes, often resting his head on the seat of a chair while standing up. And Francis removed the best part of that paragraph, the line about the chair. Darwin quoted one friend dismissing the intelligence of another by saying, Yes, I suppose that he has read the prefaces of very many books. <laughs> oh, snap! Of Sir John Herschel, he said, quote, He was very shy and he often had a distressed expression. Lady Caroline Bell admired Herschel much, but said that he always came into a room as if he knew his hands were dirty, and he knew that his wife knew they were dirty. Oh, that is such a great line, and it was taken out. I could go on and on. Over two dozen passages like this were cut out of the autobiography, draining so much of the color and humanity out of Darwin's self-portrait. The reason we know what was cut is that his granddaughter, Nora Barlow, a botanist, painstakingly listed the formerly excised passages in the back of her 1958 edition. That section by itself is a fascinating read. But it wasn't the character sketches that put the Darwins at each other's throats. It was the question of whether Charles Darwin's description of the development of his own religious doubts should see the light of day. In addition to changing and deepening my understanding of what it means to be human, studying human evolution in college led me to wonder whether traditional religion could be made to fit with it. And I wondered what Darwin thought about it. 
Again, he was seriously religious as a young man, trained for the ministry. If, after the Galapagos and the origin and the descent of man, Darwin was still a conventionally religious man, I must have really missed something about religion. So I picked up Darwin's autobiography in my senior year of college to find out. Now, if I'd picked up the first edition by Francis, or any of the many reissues of that edition, I'd have been puzzled but chastened. Darwin doesn't get into religion much at all in that one, and when he does, he seems to mostly affirm his ongoing conventional beliefs. And I would almost certainly have never looked further. Fortunately, Nora's edition is the one that found me. Nora Barlow restored the bits that the earlier edition had expunged under pressure from Charles's wife. Nora was able to do this because all of the family members who'd nearly come to blows over what to leave in were now safely dead. Here are a few passages. I'll, I'll ring a little bell to indicate the beginning of the part that had been cut out and was restored in Nora's version. I liked the thought of being a country clergyman. Accordingly, I read with care Pearson on the Creed and a few other books on divinity. And as I did not then in the least doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible, I soon persuaded myself that our Creed must be fully accepted. It never struck me how illogical it was to say that I believed in what I could not understand and what is, in fact, unintelligible. Got it? The part after the ding was deemed too sensitive. Of course, taking it out changed everything. Here's another. During these two years, I was led to think much about religion. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox, and I remember being heartily laughed at by several of the officers, though themselves orthodox, for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. I suppose it was the novelty of the argument that amused them. But I had gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament, from its manifestly false history of the world, with the Tower of Babel, the rainbow at sign, etc., etc., and from its attributing to God the feelings of a revengeful tyrant, was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. Now, it's sometimes fascinating to see what Emma insisted be struck out and what she allowed in. She left in a brief expression of growing doubt, but seemed uncomfortable with the stronger statement that followed it. I found it more and more difficult, with free scope given to my imagination, to invent evidence which would suffice to convince me. Thus disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but was at last complete. The rate was so slow that I felt no distress and have never since doubted for a single second that my conclusion was correct. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Now, Francis oversaw an even more abbreviated 1892 American edition in which the entire 12 pages exploring Charles's religious beliefs are replaced with a single 
bracketed fib. It said, after speaking of his happy married life and of his children, he continues. Francis. Yet if you look hard enough in all but the God Bless America edition, you can find one quiet sentence in which Darwin is allowed to clearly state his actual theological conclusions. Like Huxley, he utterly rejected belief in the claims and doctrines of Christianity, but said, the mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble to us, and I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. The distortion of Darwin's views continued for years. One of the most galling attempts was by Lady Elizabeth Hope, an evangelist who published a fabricated story in 1915 claiming to have heard Darwin renounce evolution and embrace Jesus on his deathbed. Francis redeemed his editorial self brilliantly, saying, quote, Lady Hope's account of my father's views on religion is quite untrue. I have publicly accused her of falsehood, but have not seen any reply. My father's agnostic point of view is given in my life and letters of Charles Darwin, he wrote to a publisher in 1918. I was present at his deathbed, said Charles's daughter, Etty. Lady Hope was not present during his last illness, or any illness. I believe he never even saw her, but in any case, she had no influence over him in any department of thought or belief. He never recanted any of his scientific views, either then or earlier. We think the story of his conversion was fabricated in the USA. The whole story has no foundation whatsoever, unquote. Etty's niece, Nora, was the one who eventually put the pieces back together. But the genie never goes all the way back in. Several of the best-selling versions of Darwin's autobiography on Amazon are still the Francis Darwin edition. And televangelists and evangelical websites and preachers in the pulpits still tell and retell the false story of his deathbed conversion and renunciation of his greatest work. So, what about the theory of evolution itself? How did it fare after the origin? Well, the common assumption is that there was an immediate line drawn between religion and science, and that wasn't the case at all. A large number of prominent English clergy embraced the theory, or at least struggled mightily with it. Two great books about that struggle are God's Funeral by A.N. Wilson, and an old but really good book, if you can find it, called Apes, Angels, and Victorians by William Irvine. You might know that the Catholic Church supports the teaching of evolution, but they came to it very gradually. In 1893, Leo XIII decried what he called the unrestrained freedom of thought, yes, his actual words, that he saw running rampant, including evolution, and warned that religion and science should stay out of each other's sandboxes. But by 1950, Pius XII said, quote, the church does not forbid research and discussion related to evolution, so long as it does not contradict certain assumptions, such as, quote, souls are immediately created by God, and humans cannot ultimately have come from non-living matter. Though I seem to distinctly remember Adam being made from dust, but whatever. Then in 1996, John Paul II said, some new findings lead us toward the recognition of evolution as more than a hypothesis. 
Now, by the way, there's a big and fascinating story about the translation of John Paul II's statement when he said that about evolution, but I just can't justify that whole tangent. If you want to read that, Google up a blog post I wrote eight years ago called Screwing with His Holiness. It is a bananas story, but I want to get to the science side, which by no means lined up in unanimous support of the theory of evolution in the decades that followed the origin. And this is a crucial story to tell your older kids so they understand how science works and what the theory of evolution endured, appropriately so, before it was widely accepted. In a 1942 book, Julian Huxley, grandson of Darwin's bulldog Thomas Huxley, described the 1880s to 1920s as the eclipse of Darwinism. Support for the theory seriously dwindled during that period, with ever more biologists feeling it just wasn't adequate to explain all the evidence. Now, it didn't help that Darwin kept putting out ever weaker new editions of the origin as he bent over backwards to answer concerns without having access to the evidence that would eventually put the theory over the bar. It's a painful thing to watch in these successive editions. But for a while, it was plausible that Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection would be completely thrown over as alternatives were explored, like orthogenesis, the idea that life has a natural tendency to change over time in a single direction. There's neo-Lamarckism, that features acquired by parents in their lifetimes are passed on to progeny. Mutationism, that new species are created in a single step by mutation. And theistic evolution, which says that God was running the whole thing. What Darwin's theory had lacked was a recognized mechanism for heredity, an explanation of how exactly specific traits got passed from parents to offspring. They didn't know. Well, actually, somebody knew, or at least had a good start on it. An Augustinian friar named Gregor Mendel, the guy with the peapods, figured out the rules for heredity, laying the groundwork for the field of genetics. He even published his findings in a journal called the Proceedings of the Society of Nine Cranky Moravians or something like that in 1866. For 34 years, Mendel's research, the findings that were the missing piece of Darwin's revolution, lay in near total obscurity because they were published in this tiny Moravian journal. Then finally, in 1900, the biologist William Bateson and the statistician Udney Yule came across Mendel's work almost by chance and connected it to Darwin's work, setting in motion what was later called the modern synthesis of evolution and genetics that would eventually snap everything into place. Now the mechanism of evolution by natural selection was understood, and the last significant scientific opposition to the theory fell away. By the time Huxley's book named the synthesis in 1942, no substantial dissent remained among biologists. Darwin's theory was the accepted explanation for the diversity of life on Earth. So why include all of this in a parenting podcast series on evolution? It's because no evolution education is complete without understanding the hailstorm of debate and criticism that the theory withstood for 70 years after publication. It wasn't the instant darling of the scientific community. It had to withstand the kind of challenge that all revolutionary theories go through. That's good for kids to know. Darwin ended the origin of species with this lovely passage. 
It is interesting to contemplate an entangled bank, clothed with many plants of many kinds, with birds singing on the bushes, with various insects flitting about, and with worms crawling through the damp earth, and to reflect that these elaborately constructed forms so different from each other and dependent on each other in so complex a manner have all been produced by laws acting all around us. He then lists those laws, about a half dozen basic principles of evolution by natural selection, and ends the book with this. From the war of nature, from famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, namely, the production of the higher animals, directly follows. There is grandeur in this view of life, with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. I love that he ended with this. In addition to the poetry of it, it underlines the fact that he's not just talking about us. In fact, he only even implies human evolution in a single sentence in this book. Light will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. He threw that light 12 years later with the descent of man. But this book, The Origin, is all about the connection of all life to all life. So when you do talk to your kids about their place in evolution, don't limit it to apes and monkeys. The real grandeur of the view of life Darwin described is that connection to everything that has ever lived. You are a cousin not just of apes, but of the sequoia and the amoeba, of mosses and butterflies and blue whales. That is our inheritance. That's the family we need to care for. The Raising Freethinkers podcast is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. I'm Dale McGowan. See you next time for Raising Freethinkers. <laughs>